Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Over the past few weeks, relations between the White House and Joe Manchin and relations between most congressional Democrats and Joe Manchin hit rock bottom, with Manchin accusing the White House of putting his family in physical danger and announcing his opposition to the Build Back Better Act. At least one House Democrat has kept an open line of communication with him, though, and that's Ro Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley and serves as the deputy whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Khanna has carved out a place for himself in the House as one of the few progressives who's been able to maintain working relationships with not just conservative Democrats, but also Republicans who aren't afraid to be seen in public with a Democrat. This week, he's out with a new book, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us, which tries to rethink progressive politics, warning that the current drift is alienating working class voters and entrenching a social divide that is not just undesirable in general, but also catastrophic for democratic political prospects. And that's democratic with both a big D and a little d. Congressman Khanna, welcome back to Deconstructed. Thank you. Always good to be on. And so we're here to talk about your new book, Dignity in the Digital Age, which is, I, I can say it's, it's, it's a really readable and interesting book, uh, which I wouldn't say about almost any book written by a member of Congress. Well, it's you know, a low are... bar, but I'm glad, <laughs> I, I'm glad I've, I've cleared it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, actu- it's, it's, it's a genuinely good book, and, and I do want to get to that in a minute. Actually, first, how did you get Amartya Sen to write a foreword for it? You know, I didn't know Amartya Sen personally, but I had reached out to him on the idea, and he liked the point about sort of the blend of globalization and local community, and thought it was interesting, and then we struck up, I guess a friendship is probably too strong a word, but we have now become acquaintances and share a commitment also to pluralism on, on the South Asian subcontinent, but it was a great honor. I mean, he's obviously... Uh, someone who's one of the greatest thinkers in the world. And a a lot of the questions that you grapple with in this book are going to be impacted one way or another by whether or not Democrats actually end up passing and what Democrats end up passing relative to the, what had been the original build back better act. So I wanted to start with a little bit of that. You've been one of the few Democrats in, in the house who's been able to maintain kind of an open line with, with Senator Manchin. And so what's, what's your sense of how alive on a scale of, you know, completely dead to totally alive the Build Back Better Act is? Or what, what are we looking at? Are we looking at pieces of it going through? Are we looking at this potentially being revived in the next few weeks? And how does it interact then with the confirmation of a new Supreme Court justice? Does that crowd everything out? We have a good chance of a new version emerging that has a few of the key priorities. Now, here's the reality. No one knows how the 2022 election is going to turn out. If we don't pass climate legislation now, 
it could be years before we do anything uh, on climate. This is the most substantial climate proposal we've ever had in our history. We need these billions of dollars, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, to develop the new innovation, the new energy sources. And Senator Manchin is largely on board with the climate provisions. He also, and other senators, I think we could get consensus on kids, three and four-year-olds getting preschool. We could get consensus on some of the expansion of Medicaid. Beyond that, it will be uh, challenging to see what else gets in the package. There may be a couple other things. My view is we ought to give Senator Manchin the space of a few weeks. Uh, right now is going to be voting rights and the omnibus bill. Uh, see if we can come to a consensus particularly rooted in climate, pass it, and then p have votes on uh, all the rest uh, separately. And I've also heard that, that, that Manchin is actually mostly okay with this with significant pieces of the of the climate portion of build back better and that it was in the offer that he you know delivered to president biden right before everything completely blew up so i i've heard that i don't think that people are lying about it how do we square that with what we understand about mansion just from a pop culture perspective he has always been for innovation on new sources of energy and technology. And a lot of that four to 500 billion is how do we invest to make more solar, wind, uh, how do we invest in uh, energy efficiency. Where he has had issues is uh, on the punitive side or on the regulatory side where we are actually penalizing utilities for not uh, adopting renewable energy or we're penalizing them uh, for polluting. Now, I, of course, supported some of those penalties as well, and I supported the Clean Electricity Energy Program, which would have had those penalties. I support stronger methane fee uh, penalties. I support the idea that we should take away tax credits for a CCS if it's used for enhanced oil recovery. I'm not going to sugarcoat that there are differences there between my, my view of what needs to be done and uh, Senator uh, Manchin and others in the Senate. But if we can't come to consensus there, we can still get $500 billion in a massive investment in renewable energy that's still moving the ball considerably, and it would be malpractice not to do that. What do you think went wrong before that can be done differently this time? I believe there was some wishful thinking. I, I think Senator Manchin has been pretty clear about where he uh, has been probably for the last year. And there was some wishful thinking that uh, if we just continued to build momentum, uh, he would come along at the end. And I think that wishful thinking was based on a view that he came along on the American Rescue Plan. Uh, but those who have talked to him will say he's, he did that as a one-time thing. He said he was very clear to the White House that it was a one-time support for the child tax credit given the circumstances of the pandemic, but he has not signed on to doing this in a permanent way. Uh, and uh, in retrospect, I mean, obviously it's easy to, to Monday morning quarterback, but in retrospect, we should have probably taken him more literally in the early summer and figured out how we get something done that he was comfortable with. Now, your, your book isn't really a 
tell-all or, or kind of a blow-by-blow of congressional action, but you do get into some pieces of legislation that you've been working on, and you, and you do talk about one that is, that is still alive, and it's kind of the second biggest maybe piece of legislation that's still before the House, and that's what was originally called the Endless Frontier Act. Pre, you, you had a version of it that predated that name. Schumer then changed it because what he thought people were confusing it with like a, a space bill or something. And so now it's called what something like the US China innovation competitiveness something or other. Don't give him any ideas. He hasn't he hasn't put China right. in there yet. It's it's called free of China's uh, US Innovation and Competition Act. By the time we're done, China will be in there. <laughs> uh, and so you talk about a particular portion of the bill that that you're excited about. And I want to talk about that in a second. But you also mentioned that one of the chief obstacles that you had was the staff of the Sci- House Science Committee. You really read this book in detail. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I don't think people understand the role that staff play in the congressional ecosystem sufficiently. Uh, so can you talk a little bit of, about that? Staffers, people might think that staffers are just aids to bosses that they're you know they're a member tells the staff what to do and they and they do that but particularly on committees where that can become a career where you work for the science committee for decades where the subcommittee chairs turn over the members turn over but the staff stays they become something of an institution th- themselves and so how did this you know what was their position towards the legislation they are and look most staff uh, are wonderful people who care about public service and are doing this not making that much money, including people on the House science staff. But the reason I detail this is the staff is often a huge challenge in terms of change. And it's not because they are bought off by lobbyists or it's not because they are in any way uh, nefarious. It's because they bought into the reigning Uh, status quo ideology. And that's almost uh, more challenging than simply the lobbyist and money influence on Capitol Hill. It's almost that you have an ideology on many different issues that emerges, and breaking from that ideology is very, very difficult. Here you had the president of the United States, the Senate majority leader, and the Speaker of the House wanting to break from the ideology, but still the obstacle in many ways were the, the staff. And the specific dispute here was they didn't want to have an industrial policy outlook from the NSF. They had this view that the NSF is pure and it needs to be simply about theoretical science and that there shouldn't be necessarily a technology directorate that uh, uses that science to uh, create jobs, like Intel is creating jobs in Ohio, the paradigm case for the endless frontiers of the Competition Act. And they thought that could corrupt the science. So we had to have calls with the MIT Uh, president who said, you know, even theoretical scientists need the practical application to advance in theory. Unless you're Albert Einstein, you usually need to see how the things play out. And by the way, if we're using tax dollars, there should be some public accountability. Uh, And that was a a long debate that now I'm glad that the current version has the tech directorate. It has a massive plus ups. That was another thing the committee staff was very hesitant. Can, Can these agencies really take that kind of increase. So it's, again, it's not that they aren't um, thoughtful or that they don't have a point of view. It's just that uh, they aren't democratically electorate and that 
it shows how difficult it is to actually get change uh, against a, a, an ingrained system. That's interesting because I noticed in the book you were making that argument that that kind of practical and theoretical science interact with each other in a dynamic way. And that seems true and obvious. I didn't realize as I'm reading that that, that partially that argument was fleshed out to talk the staff into moving on this piece of legislation. Is that right? Yes. No. And I, I, it was partly we had the Caltech president, MIT president talk about how the, there is not this corruption of science. And there was an under, there's an understandable legacy of why science wanted to be independent of politics, right? What you, what you don't want is, uh, okay, so-and-so is a member of Congress X and they want this, the funding coming to their district and the, the science has to be dictated uh, by uh, members of Congress or committees. I mean, we can uh, imagine how terrible that could, could, could emerge. And so there was a, sci- the scientific community wanted independence. And there's a value, like any argument, there's always some value to uh, why it's made in the first place. And, but the point is that they were so wedded to this, and there's certain groups that are so wedded to this, that it sort of became science independence for its own sake. And I think there was a, a, a lack of uh, appreciation of the, the public role in that and the, the accountability that science still needs to have to the public, especially with, with tax dollars. And it gets to one other point, which is sort of the scientific certainty. I mean, not to be philosophical, what is scientific truth, which Charles Pierce sort of says over the long run in ideal conditions of discourse in, among scientific experts, that's how we know what scientific truth is. But the point is that there, too often I think there's this view, well, they don't know the science, and it can almost come off condescending. And one of the points that I try to make in the book is even when we're talking about science, we probably want to have appropriate democratic participation and non-judgmentalism. And, and try to make the case of getting people on board uh, it, with a recognition that it's science in a, in a democracy. It's not science divorced from democracy. And I thought using science funding deliberately as industrial policy was an interesting innovation because we've obviously we've done that by accident all over the place, whether it's through the Pentagon or, or other places. You know, government funding of science and technology has produced all sorts of industries, including Silicon Valley, the one that you represent now in, now in Congress, but to do it more deliberately fits into the, the framework that you lay out in the book. So let's talk about that f- for a moment. So you, you, you sketch out this idea of, of progressive capitalism in a way that you're, you're trying to kind of harness the wealth creation of, of Silicon Valley in a way that can democratize and spread the value across the country and across the, across the world. And so lay out a little bit of the outline of the book, and then, we'll, and then we can go into it kind of chapter by chapter. So the thesis of the book is that in my district and the surrounding areas, you've had $11 trillion of wealth generation, the most wealth generation probably in any region in human history. And yet globalization and the new economy has not worked for a lot of working families in a lot of places in this country. They've had jobs go offshore. They've had deindustrialization, and for a long time, they were basically told, "Get new skills and move." And we saw towns uh, deteriorate, uh, stores shutter, uh, and a lot of people left out of the participation of the new economy. Now, I think the billionaires in my district should be taxed, 
and I go into why they should be taxed to have uh, universal health care and preschool and nutrition. But I don't think that's sufficient. I don't think Americans are sitting there saying, okay, let all the money be made in these a few areas, tax them, and then uh, invest. They want to contribute. They want to participate in this modern economy where they're going to have 25 million digital jobs. And many of those jobs aren't this idea of, oh, you got to go code and work for Google. I mean, these are jobs like the 3,000 manufacturing jobs that are being created with Intel going to Ohio. And as Enrico Moretti, an economist, shows, they have a multiplier effect. So you now have 7,000 construction jobs there in a whole ecosystem in New Albany uh, that is emerging. And what I argue is that if we can find a way of decentralizing these 25 million jobs, if we uh, actually incentivize them uh, to be in small towns, in rural communities, in mid-sized cities through a series of policies, then maybe uh, you could have more people staying in their hometowns if they want uh, and having economic opportunity, economic revival uh, without cultural displacement without telling them, you know, you got to live in Fremont, California or Palo Alto, uh, and that that would uh, help both give people more hope about their place in a 21st century economy and create more connectivity, perhaps, between New Albany, Ohio and Silicon Valley. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And so the, the way you talk about expanding these opportunities to places like Mississippi, West Virginia, Columbus, Ohio, kind of fits into two, two big buckets, and then there's a lot more to it, but two, two main buckets. One would be training programs, and the other is direct investment in the creation of kind of research institutions. I, I think you call them digital land grants, sort of, you know, basically building off of Abraham Lincoln's land grant universities that he that he constructed in 1862, which really created a lot of the a lot of the wealth in the in the United States, and that which was a particularly you know defining defining moment. This was just ahead of Reconstruction, but it it foresaw the creation of what what they were trying to build as a this multiracial democracy coming out of the Civil War, where you know freed slaves would be given land. And then these land-grant universities would teach both white and black farmers, you know, this, the skills needed to participate in this in this new economy. Obviously, the former part of that didn't happen. The, the land was 
rescinded from freed slaves and they were put into you know, a, a Jim Crow system for the next 80 years, whereas the land grants did expand around the country, did provide skills and education and training to people, did produce wealth. You, you, talk, you have some statistics in there that show that where there were land-grant universities, you know, there, there was significantly more economic development. And so you propose doing something similar around digital education. That, to me, makes a lot of sense because, at minimum, you're creating the jobs in those research centers, you know, in those universities, in those schools. And then you're creating people who have skills and understanding who can then build off of those networks that are created. I'm a lot more skeptical about the, the training programs. And so I want to hear from you kind of the best case that you can make for them. And you, you write about several, one of them in Kentucky where you visited that Hal Rogers had, I, I assume, got some, got some pork for it, the, 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 the Prince of Pork, um, Hal Rogers, like one of perhaps Congress's greatest earmarker in its, in its entire history, just an utter, you know, runs an utter kingdom ran an outer kingdom out there. And then you talk about some others elsewhere in the country. And those, there are some, there are success stories, but also at a, at huge costs and a lot of failure stories as well. A lot of people who come through them, but then don't get jobs at, at the end of it. So what is the case that, that these training programs can actually work? Well, I think that's a very good, uh, recap of what I talk about. I mean, the digital grants are at land-grant universities across the country at HBCUs, and they're regionally specific. And what I say is, look, we've got to get over this idea that a digital job is trying to turn a factory worker into a coder or trying to have you work at Apple or Google. That is not the digital job of the 21st century. The digital job is, the, in many ways, the middle-class job, whether it's in manufacturing or retail and you have 25 million of them, more than construction or manufacturing combined. And so the question is, how do you prepare people for these jobs? With GM, for example, that they're hiring 3,000 people in the technical design of cars, those jobs don't have to be in Silicon Valley. Those jobs could be in Michigan, and you could have these land-grant universities really work with the private sector in offering a course. It doesn't have to be a four-year degree. It often has to be a 10-month, 18-month course, get the credential, have people working, whether it's in retail and manufacturing, in, and talk about Alex Hughes in Paintsville, Kentucky, who's making smart dishwashers and making uh, uh, smart refrigerators. So this is relatable, and it's giving people uh, the actual credentials. There are two problems with the, the education. One, it doesn't often have a sufficient uh, practical outcome at the end uh, with the right the mix of uh, partnership uh, with with the industry that's going to create the jobs, uh, and two, it doesn't. Some of them don't have a job at the end, so you have people then get these these courses and and don't have a job at the end. I think if it's done uh, in a way that uh, involves the the local industry and and actually has a, a eight month, ten month uh, a credential, then it it can lead to the these jobs. And and I cite a number of places where it has. One other point I'd say on this, the challenge has been that, that there's been this view that, oh, let's just go plop up Silicon Valleys everywhere, or let's, as a caricature, uh, turn coal miners into coders. And I think that has done a disservice. I think the uh, broader question is, 
where are the middle class jobs of a 21st century economy in different sectors going to come from? How do we get people the credential that's going to allow them to have these jobs? And how do we link those credentials to jobs? That, I think, is achievable. And how do we prevent these from becoming just ripoffs? The, the worst example of these would be our 20-year exercise in, in Afghanistan. You know, if giving Halliburton or KKR uh, a bunch of money to train local police, train soldiers, and they just pencil whip the whole thing. You know, they just, they just find warm bodies, you know, to put in desks or often actually not even, they don't even have the bodies show up. They just write down that the people showed up and they say, hey, we trained these people, pay us our contract, and you don't actually have anybody trained to do anything. There, you know, there's no incentive necessarily for Halliburton in that case to produce people who are actually trained in the thing they're supposed to be trained with. Their only incentive is to hit hit their numbers, which is why I like the idea of a an actual kind of digital university better, you know, because it's it's a it's a thing that you can understand. You know, we understand college, we understand universities. But we also understand these for-profit kind of training programs that can just churn people out. So how do you guard against that? Well, I'd be very skeptical of some of these for-profit training programs. And some of them, I don't go into all of them in the book, but you know, someone can just uh, Google it and you can have story after story, including in the New York Times, about how a number of people came together, created, quote unquote, a nonprofit or even a for-profit, said that uh, they were going to teach folks how to code or do technology. And then a couple of years later, nothing happens. And I think actually that's added to the skepticism in these communities. So I would say yeah, you want to have the land-grant universities or the HBCUs involved. Uh, if, if you're going to go with a, a boot camp or something that is not a land-grant institution, then you should have certification requirements and have the federal government or at least a good state government certify that carefully. And then you want to get credible private sector companies involved as well, if it's part of the, the curriculum, but in a place where there are metrics, that, that there's accountability. So you don't just have some grant going uh, to a company and saying, okay, go, go do this. Uh, and I think if you have that ecosystem of the federal government sort of accountability, the land-grant institutions or a very credible boot camp with industry, uh, then you have the best chance at at success and without the the fraud. And so what has wound up so far in, in the legislation, like the, the Endless Frontier Act? So when it comes to creating these types of institutions? So in the Endless Frontiers, it's focused, one, on the CHIPS funding, which is funding to these semiconductor companies to be able to expand into, into the Midwest and the South. And I understand there's some concerns on on there, one of my uh, hopes, and I'm working to actually try to get an amendment, is that these companies should be neutral towards labor organizing. So you can't say that, uh, I guess you can, but it would never pass, that they have to have union jobs. Uh, but they at least should not be opposing the union organizing if they are getting uh, public funding. But that, to me, in making sure there's sufficient guardrails on, on the funding uh, is important. I do think there will, and we ought to have the entire Democratic Party, in my view, descend on New Albany, Ohio, to claim credit for $20 billion and 3,000 jobs coming to that state. I mean, Trump 
did almost nothing with the carrier dealer Foxconn. And, you know, the whole country knew about it here under President Biden's watch. You're basically having the revitalization of uh, parts of Ohio. And we're not talking about it. The Endless Frontiers, the Competition Act, would make that even more possible in many other parts of the, the country on the semiconductor front. And then they have these tech hubs, which would be an investment in sort of local universities in combination with the private sector to say, hey, we want to have certain technology development, whether that's in clean technology, whether that's in AI, whether it's in robotics, and we want to try to, to establish that in our uh, mid-sized city or our community, and they could apply to the Department of Commerce for that funding. And the other thing you write about is, or you sh- you kind of shy away from the political implications of people moving in the way that they did during the pandemic. A lot, a lot of people from cities moving out to rural areas, because you talk about how there's a lot of skepticism in rural areas that these are folks that are just coming in to try to turn their county blue, and that there's all this fear that, you're, that they're going to try to bring their cosmopolitan liberal values to, to rural America. And I, I don't know if I've talked about this on this show or not, but I was one of those cosmopolitan liberals who, during the pandemic, we picked up and moved to Southern Vermont because school was in and we just couldn't fathom the idea of our kids being out. Of, you know, we, have, we have four little kids. And so the idea of four kids doing remote school for an entire year was just absolutely terrifying. Wow. And so we went went to Vermont. By the way, that explains your sentiment, probably explains a lot of the challenges with the Democratic Party in the large parts of this country. I mean, I think parents are just fed up. Whether I'm not saying we've because our policy has been wrong. I just think as a matter of fact that the challenges for parents have been uh, very, very difficult. I say that as a father of two young kids. Yes. And, you know, we did it for the spring of 2020, you know, shut down in March and just good, good Lord, you know, just absolutely brutal because a lot of this software also doesn't work very well. So not only do you have the difficulty of kids trying to learn through screens, but you also have difficulty just hooking up and keeping it hooked up and keeping everything working. And if you're, if you've got four of them, it's just hopeless. And so we went to Vermont. And so we, we, I think a third of this public school there was people from New York, New Jersey, couple actually from Washington, just moving moving to the area to work remotely and getting a taste of this rural life. And some of them stayed. And I think you're, you've seen that around, and you're going to see that after the pandemic, you're going to see a number of people saying, you know what, I don't need to be in New Jersey or New York. I don't need this hour commute on the train. I'm going to, I'm going to work remotely. And so there are political implications of this shift and some of them are uh, partisan and will could influence elections on the, on the margins but i but i think the theme that you talk about more broadly is even more interesting than that in the sense that if we continue on the current trajectory of cities like cleveland and columbus and becoming fully hollowed out that then animates and and heightens the hostility to those cities out in the rural areas outside of there. In other words, you know, the worse the worse off things get in Cleveland and Columbus and Cincinnati, the more hatred and racism there is in the rest of Ohio. There's this othering, you know, the that people out in the the hinterlands of Ohio think 
you know, they, they don't visit Cincinnati. They don't visit Columbus, but they, they, they hear about it and they hear about the violence. And they hear about how awful it is. And, and they understand that the best of Ohio is in the past. And that creates a breeding ground for fascism, for, for a, a kind of nasty right-wing populism that then creates its own vicious cycle that is very difficult to turn around. And so turning that around does have some interesting implications for, let's say, the Senate in New Hampshire or Montana. You know, if you've got a whole bunch of liberals moving to Bozeman, you know, that can that can be interesting electorally. But also from just a political economic perspective, it seems like the only way to keep the country from falling apart is to put people physically together in these places and the technology hubs and the remote work seem like at least a possibility of doing that. Did you, did you think about the kind of social fabric as you were working on this idea? I appreciate it because these are exactly the themes that were motivating uh, my thinking. First point is that the Democratic Party, or as a country, we need a theory of production, of people wanting to contribute. You know, Cleveland was the Silicon Valley of its time. And part of why I use this lens of technology is it represents the future. And people want to have pride. They want to have prosperity. They want to contribute to the economy. We have a wonderful case, I think, as, as Democrats of justice, of distributive justice. Everyone needs health care. Everyone needs preschool. Everyone needs nutrition. Everyone needs a proper wage, but we also have to have some sense of aspiration for people. People want to to work. They want to be fulfilled in their work. They want their communities to thrive. And part of what I say uh, is causing some of the resentment uh, is that a lot of communities don't feel like they have that. And they they've been told, go move, just go, go move. You'll find a job. And their kids are buying one-way tickets out and they're talking about a brain drain in their communities like my parents talked about when they left India. They, they, many of them want to stay. I'm not saying moving is great if you want, but you shouldn't be forced to, to move just for the search for uh, economic uh, prosperity. So part of this is saying, you know what, we, we've got to bring a way of communities to thrive without telling them that they have to move. And if they're able to thrive, maybe they're able to hold on to some of the cultural traditions and, and, and mores of a town uh, that makes the the shift demographically uh, in this country easier for people to embrace if they still have some familiarity in their local communities and, and, and traditions. And then the second point is right now when Silicon Valley does well, very hard to argue that Beckley, West Virginia, or Columbus, Ohio, maybe, but certainly Youngstown or other places are doing well, it's disconnected. And if we had more connectivity with people in these communities thriving, but that they also had some stake in the digital economy. And by the way, I have a whole chapter on workers and how you could win the lottery work for Amazon in terms of, you know, you're suddenly working for one of the richest companies ever, and you're basically dehumanized in the work workplace. I mean, think about that prospect from a worker's perspective. Here you're working at a company that is more market value than everywhere, and you're still not thriving. But if we could figure out a way that you actually had more connectivity with the digital prosperity that's been driving most of the wealth generation of the last decades, both geographically and 
uh, based on class and based on race and gender, then maybe we have more sense of connectivity in, in, in this country. And that's, those are the, the themes. It's not to say, have a Pollyannish view that, okay, now you've got people in Silicon Valley working with rural Americans and African Americans, and some, somehow we're going to have kumbaya. Uh, but I can tell you the disconnects of no connection on prosperity and the enormous gulfs of uh, economic opportunity are, are certainly exacerbating uh, the challenge of becoming a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. Now, one of the criticisms of the of the idea, and, and you you address this a little bit in the book, I want to put a fine point on it, is that looking to tech as a solution here is undermined by the fact that tech in the places where it's already dominant has produced massive inequality in its own backyard. You know, in other words, the idea that it's going to do anything useful around the country is is betrayed by that. Uh, if you look at Austin or if you look at the Bay Area or, or, or other places where wealth has grown, you have workers who are you know, pushed so far out into poor neighborhoods that they can barely you know, commute in and out just to serve the wealthy people who have been able to build you know, moats around their areas. And so how optimistic are you that that can be grappled with? Well, it's a very fair critique, and I try to make it in, in chapter four where you know, I actually critique Enrico Moratti, who's a brilliant economist. He says, well, tech has this multiplier effect. You have one good tech job, and you're going to have four other good jobs paying above a median wage. The problem is that it doesn't account for a lot of the uh, people who are doing service jobs. You know, two-thirds of the jobs in this country don't require a computer. They're physical jobs still. And what about all the people who are serving the food and who are driving the buses and who are cleaning the buildings and baristas at the, at the coffee shops? It turns out in my district, which I know obviously the best, uh, there are a lot of people in those occupations who are rent burdened, who have 50, 60 percent of their salary simply go uh, into the rent. And it's created gentrification. It, we're basically, you know, uh, some of these young techies come in saying, well, why can't they move uh, if they can't afford it? And you have families who've been there three, four generations having to leave the neighborhoods that they, they grew up in, having to commute two hours and not having a, a fair wage. Part of the, the, this is unique to places where you have multi-trillion dollar companies, and the vision here isn't to have a Google and Apple everywhere. So, you know, in large parts of this country, there's a lot of land. You're not going to have this kind of huge spike in uh, housing costs, uh, and they could use the investment if anything, property values are, are depressed. But as these communities start to develop, and if uh, some types of technology hub and activity emerges, it's so important that they get the housing policy right, which we didn't in Silicon Valley, that they get the wages right, which we didn't in Silicon Valley, that they look at some of the lessons of the wet, vast uh, economic disparity of the Valley, and they say, we've got to uh, avoid those, those mistakes. And you, you also, in a later chapter, talk about freedom of speech, censorship, algorithms, and January 6th, and try to grapple with that from, from a democratic uh, perspective. You take a much more, I think, hands-off approach than, than a lot of your colleagues who are kind of urging you know, for significant amounts of censorship from, from big tech. Uh, but you also talk about a sort of like public Facebook, maybe, 
I'm, I'm curious what, what, what you have in mind when it comes to, you know, what could be publicly owned, because I do think, and I, I don't have any answers to this, but I do think I, a significant problem is the way that so these social media companies have designed their algorithms in order to exponentially increase engagement. And the way you increase engagement is you make people angry. And so you find the things that are making people angry and you put those in, in front of other people. You find the people who make other people angry and you make sure that they see each other all the time. And that you know produces anger and it can produce engagement. Like that is, that's, that's basically, you know, how those algorithms are built. And so when you talk about doing a, a public focused forum, what, what did you have in mind? Well, my view is that we need a plurality of sort of places to have speech. Now there's no doubt that the extreme stuff that took place on Facebook, where you had people before January 6th actually posting about killing uh, lawmakers in a particular time on a particular day, that that should have been taken down and reported. And the fact that the law allows Facebook not to report that and just to turn a blind eye to that is, is, is wrong. And we do need to have things that wouldn't pass the Brandenburg test in terms of speech, uh, that that has to be taken down and, and reported. But then beyond that, the question is, how do we deal with trying to improve the, the, the public discourse in, in, in this country on online. And I say, well, one of the things you need or could do is to introduce a, a public internet forum, either, either in a local community where people got to trade ideas, or in a national sense, it's sort of a PBS for, for the internet. Now, this is not going to be some panacea, and nor would it be the only place you want conversation, because you'd have reasonable restrictions on time and manner and place. And Sometimes you, you you don't want to speak just politely. You know, there's uh, value in anger. Uh, there's, you know, when Black Lives Matter were angry about George Floyd, uh, you don't want them just to have reasonable time and place. There's protest. The language of protest is sometimes good. The the language of anger is sometimes ju- justified. Uh, but uh, you, you, you want to have more options in the types of conversations we're having. And you don't want it just to just default to... Uh, the lowest uh, common denominator of outrage. And so my biggest problem is right now the architecture is largely being determined by people like Dorsey and and Zuckerberg. It doesn't have an inclusive group of people making the architecture. So you have Clubhouse rife with racism and sexism and not enough people actually participating from the black community, the brown community, or women or rural America. And you don't have enough... uh, options in terms of speech. It'd be like we have three networks uh, that telling us uh, uh, what we can watch and all of them with a few uh, uh, tech leaders. So I, that would go some way. Then one other point, you know, what newspapers are the work you do as a journalist. You, I'm sure like many if people, you get excited if it has a lot of clicks, uh, you want to get uh, engagement. I mean, I hope this interview gets listened to a lot. I mean, that's human impulse. But there's something else that's animating you. It's not just monetization. You care about making some contribution to, to democracy. And I think the me- new media company, these Facebook, social, Twitter, they uh, had this fiction that is totally wrong, that, oh, they're just the pipes. They're just the telephone phone wires. No, they are media companies. And they have an obligation to think about their role 
uh, to society and not just duck that. And uh, and that takes years to develop and, and they should develop that. And speaking of press freedom, and this is somewhat related to your, your theme, the British High Court is has allowed Julian Assange to appeal his extradition to the U.S. But all of this could go away if the Biden administration would just drop the charges against Julian Assange and stop trying to extradite him to the United States. Have you, you know, how, how much have you looked into this situation? Have you spoken with the White House about this? Do you think the White House ought to drop its prosecution of, of Assange? I do, uh, from the, my understanding of the case and the facts I've looked at. I, here's why. Uh, there is no evidence that I have seen that Assange was actively engaged in c- encouraging or aiding the hacking of sensitive uh, government information or, or certainly classified government information. All of the allegations are that he was a recipient of this information and he published it. You could condemn that morally. You could say he should have redacted things. I mean, we could have a whole debate about whether what he did was right or wrong. And I think there are things he did that, that were wrong in terms of putting people's uh, lives at risk or trying to time things in ways that could have an impact on, on, on electoral outcomes. But if you make that criminal, the publication of uh, information that you have received, that you had no role uh, in actually trying to secure, uh, then you're putting almost every journalist at risk of publishing information that should be in the public domain. And, mm-hmm. and of course, there's so many examples from the Pentagon Papers onwards of people who have published this information uh, and that actually turning out to be important for democracy. So I think the prosecution of Assange is just is overbroad and it's it shouldn't be, it's having a chilling effect on journalism and speech. Now, you know, it's a hard position for politicians to, to take because, you know, Assange has done a lot of things that arguably have put American interests or even American lives at, at, at risk based on when he's published things. Uh, and so you can speak out clearly against that, but that doesn't mean you should speak out for the prosecution. There's a reason the Obama administration decided uh, not to press further with the prosecution. Great. Well, uh, Congressman Khanna, thanks for joining me. The book is called uh, Dignity in the Digital Age. Congratulations on it. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. You're reading it so carefully. I enjoyed the conversation. That was Representative Ro Khanna, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Sharif Youssef. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you've rated it already, you can go back and rate this show. If you want to give us more feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 